Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, the CMPU, in association with 898 Authentic Rock and Roll, proudly present the ultimate catalog collection. Live from New York, it's Saturday night. Well, not New York, Saskatchewan. And t- technically it's not live. We've recorded this probably about a month before hearing it. Anyway, this is the Ultimate Catalog Clash, where myself and my co-host Corey Morissette take on the discography of one artist per season to find out which record will emerge as their best album. Corey and I also have a little side bet each season to find out who gets to pick the next artist. And on the season wrap episode, we'll be joined by a very sexy man who'll help us adjudicate. Each episode will see us review the songs on one side of one album, awarding 10 points for music, 10 for lyrics, and 5 for production. At the end of the episode, Corey and I will have a score out of 25 each to award to this side, and once we're on both sides, obviously, we'll have a combined score out of 100. Once we have all the albums rated, we'll know which one comes out on top. We are, however, discounting the most popular slash famous slash successful album in each artist's career. So, if we were covering Nirvana, we'd cover Nirvana, we'd cover um, Smells Like Teen Spirit on two episodes, but it wouldn't be eligible for either Corey or I to pick to decide the next season. So we've got to, like these little tie break things, um, and we hope that's as clear as mud. Excellent. So this well, see- <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, I, I, I'm breaking in because we just <laughs> talked about this. Uh, the, the, this format is evolving uh, as we're going along here, folks. And I was thinking, because we were thinking about, all right, so we're, we're going to pick what album we think is going to finish with the highest score discounting Invisible Touch, because that's by far yep. their biggest album, right? We thought, well, that's going to be pretty easy to tie because there's only... One, two, three, four, five, like uh, six albums then to pick from, right? You got a one in six shot of tying it. What's the tiebreaker going to be? And eventually we kind of came to, let's try and guess what the final score is going to be for Invisible Touch. Mm-hmm. And that was going to be the first tiebreaker. But thinking about it and talking to Kevin tonight, it's like, maybe we should just make that decide the winner. Uh, who, who Who's going to win this season? Because then we're not discounting Invisible Touch. Like we're still covering it, obviously. We're still grading it. Yeah. But we have to try and guess and get as close to the actual number what we think uh, the final score is going to be. What do you think about that? I think it's a great idea, Corey. I'd li- I like most of your former ideas, my friend. You, I think it's a wizard idea. I think it'll speed things up, um, and we'll be able to just get straight into the meat of talking about the, the discography that we've just covered and bringing our special guest, Mr. Haskin, into, uh, into the conversation. So I'm, I am all for it. There you go. So now to determine the winner of season one, uh, we have to guess what the final grade on this particular album is. We can make this change now because we haven't technically revealed our scores for Invisible Touch. We're starting it here tonight. So I got this in just under the wire. So our first tiebreaker, our tiebreaker will be then if we both, let's say we both guess 85%, mm-hmm. and obviously then we're tied, uh, then will be our guess for which album outside of Invisible Touch finished highest, which I, I think we actually picked different. I, I don't know that for a fact, but you made a comment like, uh, you know, I, I, I picked, uh, you know, something kind of off the wall. So I'm yeah. thinking we might be different. So we might only need the one tiebreaker if we get uh, tied on the first one. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. But we've got a big one tonight, Corey. I know this is the oh, yes. you've been waiting for. You know, even Finally. more than even the last two episodes, I, you've, I know you've been waiting for this record. Um, what's your history with Invisible Touch? Do you remember it coming out? I do. I remember uh, I was in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. I was staying with my aunt and uncle for the summer. And I remember this video was huge. Like, everybody loved the video. A catchy, catchy first single, Invisible Touch, right? Yeah. Uh, it was a huge hit. They're only number one U.S. Uh, number one. And I remember going to the department store and getting it on cassette. And just, I had a Walkman at the time. And I just listened to it 
front to back, front to back. And I was looking at the liner notes. You pulled out the little insert uh, on the cassette, right? You had all the liner notes reading all the yeah. lyrics. Uh, this was a huge, huge album for me in 1986. I would have been like 12 years old when this came out. So, Yeah, and I've got a really sentimental attachment to this album that, like I said, I'm going to have to try and put this aside as much as I can when I have this real, this real strong attachment, I think, because we've got to try and be a little bit objective. Um, yeah. and my mum and dad got divorced when I was about, I think, 10 or 11. I can't remember that. It's so long ago now. Um, and I went to live with my dad for a while, but then I ended up back with my mum right around the time this album came out, or, or maybe very shortly thereafter. And so I just loved everything about it. I love the album cover with the big orange hand and the, the sort of the pattern that's overlaid and it becomes purple on top of the hand. I loved all the details of the family and back. You know, so I, I just, I listened to this, like I said, I listened to the shit out of this album. Absolutely just listened to the crap out of this album. Um, so yeah, it's a special album for me, but, you know, listening through again, we're listening to this in 2023, 30, what is that, 37 years later, so I don't know, we'll see. Yeah, we will see. Um, talking about that, that cover, one thing I read that was interesting, Mike Rutherford hates it. Uh, not, not, a, not a fan, because he, he doesn't think it conveys uh, the message of, of, of Invisible Touch, but, because uh, I was looking for, like, overall, the band loves this record, loves every track on it, they had a great time making it. The only negative I could find was Mike uh, wasn't a big fan of the uh, cover art. Well, that's weird too because I, again, I mean, it's. I don't know if Genesis has really had a really poor album cover. Maybe we talked about, it and then there were three as a bit. Yeah, yeah, I don't really care too much about that one. But I like yeah. this one. Like, like I said, it's got that family in the background that you don't necessarily notice immediately. So it's almost that to me. It's you know, cause Invisible Touch is about a a, a failed relationship. And so you've got this family in the background. I think it works very well. Like, Mike Rutherford, what does he know? What does that guy know? <laughs> he knows a lot. He, he uh, contributed to some of my favorite songs on this record. But what do you say we hop right into it? Uh, we've been staring at the cover art here. I got the first song queued up. I'm like, Kevin, shut up. I want to play the music. Can we just play the <laughs> song here? Are you ready? Let's go. That's just a little piece of pop perfection. Very 80s, eh? When it's incredibly just, 80s. Reeks of the 80s. You're like, yeah, that's the 80s. That couldn't come from any other decade. Oh, electronic drums. Phil said he was kind of uh, inspired by uh, Sheila E. And you could kind of hear that, right? Yeah, and she because she was doing a lot of work with Prince, right? I mean, she was Prince's yeah. drummer for in the New Power Generation for years. And it would have been right around this time, too. I think that she was, well, maybe it predates. Purple Rain was, bit. what, 84? Was she on Purple Rain though? I didn't. I thought that she came in. She was with Prince, or like, uh, well, Apollonia was in Purple Rain with Prince, right? She she came after, yeah. but not not far after. Not far after, yeah. But I mean, she was still yeah. playing. She was playing with Shaka Khan and all those, all those, you know, same, yeah. that kind of eighties vibe. So yeah, and I love that. I love the minor key change. There's a lot of that on this album too. On this side of the record, I, I when I you know we go through and we listen to this a little bit more critically, and you pick up on things that you didn't necessarily notice before, and that major to minor shift into the verses fairly prevalent. This album, and I really like it here because it's very bright and bouncy at the start, and then you get this minor key. It's like, oh, okay, where's this going now? I love the the little bass accents you're getting in there. Do, 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 do. Yeah, and that's in synth that bass. Right? I mean, that's that's definitely yeah. synth bass. That's not being played on a on a on a real instrument. So, no, no. And uh, well, what do you think of the electronic drums? Well, we're going to get into this on this <laughs> side of this record. I, I, they sometimes they work and sometimes they don't for me on this record. And again, it's that thing of like, I think, you know, because again, when, you, when you're when so close to a record and you know it so well, you don't really listen to it, if you know what I mean. 
You know what I mean? You mm. don't like hear those little things, but listening to this critically on the headphones, it's like, oh, I don't always love that. I think they're okay here, but uh, I don't know. What about, how about you? You know, it, it's better with acoustic drums. Like when they play it live, uh, I, I enjoy yep. that aspect better. Uh, I go back and forth. There's parts of the live version I like better than the recorded, and there's definitely parts of the recorded that I like better than the live because they had to uh, play this uh, down a key uh, even in uh, 86, uh, they never played this in its original key. Crazy, eh? Yeah. Well, and when you hear the song, you understand why. It's <laughs> be, be tough to sing every night, especially at the end of the set. Yeah, and if you're, again, if you're a vocalist, if anyone's listening who is a vocalist, you'll go, yeah, you wouldn't want to be screeching the whole time. Like, it's, it's going to blow your voice out. Yeah. And did they, With that in a, mind. Was this a set opener, Corey? Well, I didn't, uh, even, I didn't even look at that. In 86, I'm not sure. I know in... Uh, yeah, I don't know. From We Can't Dance On, it always came, it usually came at the end of the main set. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, back then. Yeah. That makes uh, sense. All right. You know what? I'm just going to bring up a show from uh, 1986 now that you bring it up. And we'll find out early, early on. Sydney Entertainment Center in Sydney, it, it was still uh, near the end of the set. It, there okay. was a, the Cage Medley came in, and then it was Invisible Touch, Drum Duet, and Los Endos to finish off the main set and then turn it on again was the uh, encore. That's pretty sweet. Yeah. And they opened with Mama, which is really fucking cool. Oh, of course you're going to open with Mama. Of course. Jesus. What yeah. am I thinking? <laughs> All right. Well, talking about the vocals, let's listen to the first, uh, uh, the, the first verse here and then go in and we, we can pause it if you want. And then we'll get into that first chorus too. Cause Sounds good. Th this song is one of the catchiest choruses uh, in the eighties music history. I think. That's just peak Phil Collins. Yeah, man. To take everything she sees, and when he does that run on C's, like, oh, that's magic. <laughs> magic. It's great, too, that he starts in his sort of mid-register, in that sort of almost, not quite tenor, but sort of in that sort of range, and then he, then he pushes, and then he, he, he sort of belts it. That's so cool, man. Oh, it's amazing. And now we get into the chorus. I love this part. Bit of trivia for you, Corey. I don't know if you mm -hmm. looked at this. So, like you said, it reached number one on the Billboard chart, and it was there for, I think, three weeks. Do you know what song knocked it off the top spot? <laughs> Sledgehammer! Indeed. Did you see that note? That Phil, uh, Phil Collins said they didn't realize that, and he said, if we'd known, we'd yeah. sent him a note. Congratulations, bastard. Yeah. <laughs> to show you how much Genesis owned uh, the 80s, right? The former lead singer oh knocks God. off the current uh, version of the <laughs> yeah. band out of number one. One soul. I mean, if I was looking at that. Like, you look at some of the albums that came out in 86, man. It's insane. You know, so, so Peter Gabriel releases Soul. Mm -hmm. uh, Queen released A Kind of Magic, and they're going the Magic Tour. You've got Please by the Pet Shop Boys, Whitney Houston's debut album. Lionel Richie releases Dancing on the Ceiling, Aha, Hunting Iron Low, Slippery When Wet, and a little oh. album that you might be familiar with called uh, 5150. Really? Oh, yeah, I've heard of that one. 
that was a David Lee Ross solo record, right? I, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> All right, that 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 chorus, Kevin. I mean, th- that that's got to warm your heart. That's one of the the best pieces of music from the nineteen eighties. I think that's just glorious. And I, and it's funny because I think there's an even better one. There's an even better chorus on this side of this record. But it's, it's oh really? <laughs> oh, I, I think I know what you're talking about, and I think it might agree. <laughs> I can't cut it off <laughs> mid-fill. I'm sorry. It's not happening. I always get such huge, like, Jan Hammer, Miami Vice, Beverly Hills oh, yeah. vibes from that section. Yeah. Um, but I, I always think that, you know, people say, oh, yeah, he was just fucking ripping off Jan Hammer. I'm pretty sure Jan Hammer was listening to Tony Banks. And Tony yeah. Banks was doing this shit a long time before Jan Hammer came around. So, you know. Especially on, like, uh, Duke and Abacab. Like, uh, you yeah. can tell there's a real, yeah, influence on, on Jan Hammer on that. Great, cool little bridge. Uh, I love that section. Uh, my only note for a negative is, you know, the electric drums are a bit annoying. Yeah, like I said, we're going to get into it on, not to, you know, we, we don't sort of talk about the, the the side that we're not covering, but they seem, I, and I, like I said, I don't know when I get there if I will feel the same or when we talk about it, but side one, the drums are a little bit weaker and they bother me a little bit more than on side two. So that'll be reflected okay. when we start talking about production, but. And that's a, a part I like better in the live version because, uh, and you know, she will fuck up your life. Yeah. And it, it's, it's just the stronger lyric. I miss the fuck. Well, and they played, uh, they did it. Oh man, which like, it was one of the benefit concerts. It wasn't live, but it was that's one right. of those like, and they got in, they got in a lot of trouble for that because they had to feel all these calls from people complaining, you know, but they weren't yeah. the only ones in that show. But come on, it's a rock and roll show. Come on, lighten up. But you don't expect that from Phil Collins so much, right? <laughs> well, you mean, You'd be uncool with Phil. That was, I think, that was the that might have been the Invisible Touch Tour or the Week Out Dance Tour when he's talking about. You know, everyone says we're not cool. Well, fuck those guys. Be uncool with Phil. You know, <laughs> <laughs> this is studio guy. He's the one saying the F word on stage. Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, two thirty. Uh, the the band cranks it up a notch here. That key change makes the whole song. Yeah. Like, it's a good song. That key change just takes it to a different level, right? The bridge as well gives it that little bit of something different. But that call and response between Tony's keyboard and Phil's vocal, and then we lead into that key change, that's just a little bit of stardust right there. Yeah. Could not agree more. Oh my goodness! Come on! <laughs> if that doesn't get you up and dancing, you're you're just you're you're a thief of joy, and and you need to just just go crawl into a hole. There's not much gets me up and dancing, Corey. You know, I've said it before. Like, <laughs> well, you are like British. I'll roller skates, so you know. You know what? I'll, I'll give you a pass because you are British, and therefore you have no rhythm. <laughs> I was going to say to you, I'd written down 
I'd written down a fancy word. I'd written down a $50 word here about that, the outro there. You've got oh. those contrapuntal vocals underneath the main melody. So that's when you've got two distinct melodies happening at the same time in music. And Phil Collins does that quite a lot in his solo stuff too. So it's nice getting that sort of threaded back into the into the Genesis mix. And I'm thinking you just made that word up. I, I did not, sir. It's a real word. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's time to vote. What was your uh, breakdown of Invisible Touch? Played oh, 330 times live by Genesis. I'm probably going to annoy you with this, and, and, and I'm, I will have to qualify this, but I've got 7.5 for music. Fuck seven, you. Seven for lyrics and three for production. So let me just let me caveat this. Okay, uh, Mike's guitars are great. Tony's sitting back in the mix nicely. It's just a bit of texture. Phil sounds fantastic, but it's a very, very straight song. There's not a whole lot going in. If it's not for that key change, this is a really straight, forward, plain Jane rock and roll song, a pop song, right? Which, I, I can, it's not a criticism, I, I don't mind it, but there's so much of the stronger stuff on this record that I think that this stands out for being very, very simple. Lyrics, they're good, they're quite sad, and there's sort of a, there's like a little bit of a lonely undercurrent to them, hey, that I find really endearing. And that last verse is my favourite, and I love how it calls back to the first verse with the lines, she has a built-in ability to take everything she sees. Um, okay. Listening to this, I think one of the problems with this is we've just listened to Genesis, the first six Genesis albums of Phil's tenure. Now we get to this one. I just miss the real drums, man. I know it's a deliberate production decision, but those synth drums sound really flat, you know? Um, and like I said, they, they, there's other songs on this album and even on this side that utilize those better. This one, I think it, this song now sounds a bit dated, even though it's still a great song. So yeah, those 7.5, 7 and 3. Sorry, mate. I'm sorry. Who hurt you? I feel like I've 39 like, you. Oh my God. It's like you, you got this cold, dark, dead heart. And I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where my little British friend went. I, I'm, I'm, I, I feel like maybe a little piece of me died here tonight. Oh no. All right. Uh, music. I gave it a 9.5 because it's wow. fucking perfect pop perfection. Uh, I docked it half a point for the drums. <laughs> so I, I agreed with you on that. <laughs> I just didn't dock it nearly as much as you did. Uh, lyrics, I gave it a 9.5 because I love the story wow. Phil tells. Lyrically, it's so strong, uh, but there's no fuck. So I docked it a half point for the no fuck. <laughs> and then uh, production, I gave it 4.5. Uh, I docked wow. it a 0.5 because the, the synth bass is a little back in the mix. They, they could have made that a little more prominent. Yeah. Um, so I, I docked it half marks on each. Otherwise, this would have been a 10, 10, 5. I think maybe you just heard this too too many times and you're you're trying to maybe be cool. Be I don't know. You're you're not cool. <laughs> don't even try to be cool. Just love what you love, motherfucker. I, okay. Well, here's the thing. I do love this song. I do love this song, but I can't get away from the fact that it's just a wee bit, it's a bit too safe for Genesis. And like I said, once, we're going to get into some songs on this this album that are absolutely phenomenal and i think this is just a hair back of it so there you go well i can't get past the fact that we bailed your ass out in world war ii all right let's get to song number two <laughs> <laughs> this is called tonight 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 So this seems much more up your alley in that it's very atmospheric and it's not very pleasing. <laughs> Under the bus I go. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a 
I think it's what the kids call a vibe, Corey. I think they call it a vibe, don't they? Or has that changed? Mm-hmm. They probably use something else. Oh, it's a total. Well, you know, in the apple. '60s, they maybe call it a vibe. Nowadays, it's something different. I'm sure. I don't know. We'll ask Meyer. We'll ask your, your you Van Halen course. He's he's down with the kids. Um, that is true. Yeah, I mean, it like it just sets the mood straight away, right? It's this weird, and it. I think I was listening to an interview with Mark Rutherford, and he said it's one of those songs that doesn't sound like anything else in the Genesis catalog, and it really doesn't. Like it's weird. Tony Banks is just like these. It's almost like a robotic computer, you know, like a dystopian server. What 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 what? So a song, yeah, that you don't really know where it's going to go. Um, single releases a single, and and hit the top five in the US. Which we think about it, like that's that's odd. No, it was the fifth single, so it may not have been in the plans. But the album was doing so well, they think, ah, we got to throw another one out there. Let's put the weird one out and see what happens. Well, I'd actually written down, I was going to run this by you later, but I'll ask you now, do you think that they basically could have released anything off this album? Because, you know, after I the do. first two singles, they were just so big that you could have almost released the Brazilian and it might have probably hit the top five, you know? Yeah, and, uh, you know, the deepest cut on here, anything she does, I, I think would have charted quite high for him. Not to tip deep? my hand too much on side B, but... <laughs> Did that not... They released that one, didn't they? What Only singles? Uh, five singles, five singles. Invisible Touch, then Throwing It All Away, In Too Deep, Land of Confusion, and Tonight, oh, Tonight, Tonight. Oh, that's right, too, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so everything off side one plus Throwing It All Away, not you. Of course, yeah. Yeah, anything she does would have been a... That's so funny to think of that as a deep cut, because to me, it's yeah. like, I don't <laughs> you know. It was one of my... Well, I, I shouldn't, you know, spoil next week's show, but yeah, yeah. it... it and, uh, and Domino, like, they even split up Domino to put on the singles, I think... Half a domino was on uh, throwing it all away, and the other half a domino was on like uh, tonight, 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 or something. Yeah, it was, was, was kind of travesty. Weird. You cannot split. That's yeah. like splitting up the wall. Come on, give me a break. I'm not cutting off Phil. Stop on, raising hey, your little hand. Hey, look, I'm just queuing you in. When, and that's that's it. Whenever you're oh, ready, okay. Corey. That's not an immediate oh, I thing. See. Yeah. <laughs> I'm used to John Mariano. Like, come on, come on. I got something to say. Like, no. I got something to say. No, it's, I mean, I, you think about this too. It's another, a, a good musical decision where they don't put a harmony vocal on this. Because if you think about everyone else at the time, like Bon Jovi is deaf. Richie Sambor is coming in there. Right, if that's a if that's a Bon Jovi song, Sambor's coming in to, to harmonize there. But leaving Phil's vocal just stark there with that huge reverb and echo on it, it just it just really punches that section out. I think. What do you think of the melody though? Because it's it, it's kind of off putting. Like in in a way, I like it. I, they used this one in a beer commercial, didn't they? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, which again yeah, is just which, which seems weird. Yeah. Did you, a- did, did you uh, read what the original title for this was? I didn't. Monkey Zulu. Oh, you know what? Now you said that. I think I actually did know that. Yeah, so this is actually the monkey section. And then when we get into the instrumental breakdown, that's the Zulu. Well, we'll get into... Um, well, maybe we'll talk about it now then. So I'm coming down, coming down like a monkey, but it's all right. Like a lord on your back that you can't see. Ooh, but it's all right. I think I think this might be like a you know another podcast that you do, Aerosmith. Keep feeling that fucking monkey on my back. It seems like a mental health addiction type theme in this song generally to me that that's exactly what i got it's like a yeah. load on your back that you can't see but but it's all right yeah 
it's helter skelter shake it loose get it free just let it go get it away from me that's all yeah i got the yeah. monkey on my back whatever that monkey happens to be i just thought it was kind of weird that these uh tiny little british people are obsessed with monkeys because <laughs> peter gabriel wanted to shock the monkey and now these guys want to come down like a monkey what is it about monkeys and the brits we don't have them in england so it's fun we want one we want a monkey <laughs> Just give us a fucking monkey, monkey and stop arguing. <laughs> you see, it's funny if you do it with a Birmingham accent, though. Lord, I want okay. a bloody, I want a monkey. <laughs> oh, that was magic. You got to do that uh, accent more. I hope we don't have any fans in Birmingham. They're going to be like, <laughs> oh, we'll be getting hauled over the coals. So well, that was terrible. But... <laughs> I got some money in my Any clues as to uh, uh, what this monkey on his back is? Because you know he's he's got some money in his pocket. He's got to get it to somebody, but they won't answer the phone. You're not sure if it's a I need drugs, I need what have you. It's it's yeah. it's pretty ambiguous. I love musically though. If you listen to that, there's that you know there's two parts of that section and it repeats. But the last chord in the first section is uh, an F, so that's the root. But then on the second pass through, it goes to D, so it changes key, and that's again, it's just such a Genesisy thing to do. Most of the bands, you just go back to F again. You don't worry about that kind of stuff. But Genesis throws those little, those little things in, those little turning points in. Yeah. All right. Well, next for me is kind of when when the Zulu section kicks in at three sixteen. Did you have anything yeah. before then? Let's do it. That's, to that's Tony behind his gear, but I'm still here. <laughs> I didn't get to do much on the Invisible Touch. But it's funny because, like, as a young keyboard player myself, like, I grew up playing, you know, piano and keyboards way before I started playing drums. That's the kind of shit that I loved, man. It's like, fuck, how's he doing that? Where's he, where's he getting that noise from? I want a keyboard that makes that noise, you know? See, and, and this is where I'm thinking, if you're going to shave two minutes out of an eight-minute song, maybe do it at the head of this section. Like, I understand it, it's building to something. And yeah. when it builds, it's really fucking cool. And you got to take a little journey to get there. This is, you know, it, it takes us a bit to get here. This is always kind of my, my issue with, with uh, Genesis thus far on the show. I right. like where they're going. Sometimes it takes them too bloody long to get there. Well, did you listen to, because there's two, obviously there's the single edit, which is way shorter. And to me, is just a disaster. Cause totally. It rips this whole section yeah, right out. It, it rips yeah. this out. And there's no, the, so that the song ends up because of that, the song goes nowhere, right? The yep. official video version keeps this bit in, but it trims off the back half of the bridge, which I think is exactly the right thing to do because the, the back half of this does get a bit, okay, uh, you've made your point now, let's, let's move things along a bit. So I totally mm -hmm. agree. you've got almost it's that's you know that that could be a muted uh, violin or a string section but tony's playing it on the synth but the panning on it the way they've panned it it makes it circle your head when you're listening on headphones on stereo super cool that's a really nice little touch really is i think they could have started this zulu section there 
right there, uh, instead yeah. of starting it at, at at 316 where you had like a whole lot of like it, it was okay but it, it wasn't really building to anything if you would have started it here i think it would have been just as effective and you're shaving almost a you know full minute out of the song you know what we need Corey? we need it we need a cab brown edit i'm gonna once, we, once <laughs> we're done i'm gonna edit this song down i'm gonna throw you another edit and see what you think so perfect i can't wait I decided to get to now I'm in too deep. <laughs> <laughs> but that's this is what my criticism of this is. Just think about like the in the air tonight drums there. Like get yeah. some just get that crashing through this section because the drums are so lifeless in that yeah. section where the build is fantastic and that now I'm in that's a great little vocal, but it just falls a bit flatter because the drums like, oh, okay, that's got no punch, but all right. You know what I mean? I, I don't I don't disagree at all with what you're saying. I, I just don't think it bothers me as much. Yeah, and maybe just because I'm so accustomed to this song, but to me, this is the section that kind of saves the song for me. Uh, the first okay. four minutes, I'm kind of indifferent, like, oh, okay, like lyrically, it's it's really he, he has one message. It's really kind of going nowhere, and it's pretty repetitive. Uh, yeah. Chorus is kind of okay. Uh, we get into the Zulu part, okay, it's you know it's dragging on and on. Now it's starting to build. Now I'm getting a little more invested. When we get to this part here, I'm all in. Like, all right, now I, now you got me, boys. Yeah, just like I said, just think if you added some really fucking good sounding drums in there, this would be. This would be a highlight on the album, right? Even like uh, electronic hat lifts. Like I was talking with Scott after recording this week about how to get the perfect hat lift. Because yeah. I talked about that on a show and he was trying to teach me how to do it uh, over Zoom. And it's like... <laughs> And Phil had such great hat lifts uh, on yeah. earlier albums that we covered here, and here it's it's programmed. It's like, oh, no. But there is one. Uh, it's right at 6.54, 6.55 on the version that I was listening to where you do hear one, and it sounds like it's played, not programmed. Because it's just uh, got that little bit of feel where it's just ever so slightly ahead of the beat, and you think, okay, yeah, that's an actually played. Which is weird to play half of it and then sequence some. I don't know. I don't know why you do that, but. Yeah. Uh, I had 703 as having a, a cool drum fill into the power chord. We'll start it at 653. Okay. To, we're bound to hit it uh, one, of, one of these times. Was that it? It was earlier than that. I mean, it's blinking, you'll miss it. Like, some of those where you okay. really got to listen to it. But it's, yeah, I mean, and I was going to, there's a bit at 7.15 too. Well, we're going to get to Mark Rutherford's guitar. I'm sure you've got that one bookmarked because finally we end up getting a bit of guitar in this song. But there's a bit at 7.15 where Tony plays, it's like a little synth sweep, but he starts out a, a semitone lower and it gives you this weird dissonance, which again is cool because he doesn't do that anywhere else in the song. And it's the same progression, but he doesn't do it. So... It's something that they add in just for that one section, which I think is cool. But, you know, um, let's skip forward to Mike's guitar, because I'm sure you want to get to that, and it, it is pretty fucking cool. Just someone get me out of here. Just someone get me out of here. 
I'm moving my little fader up a little more too. Like, let's bring the guitars up a bit more, yeah. boys. It's, it's so cool. And you think too, though, that I know that I've talked to Randy about this lots so when we when we record. When I go in with my shitty little songs, and you know, I've got like a phrase or something. I think, oh, I want to put this sounds cool. And he says, yeah, but don't play it all the time, Kev, because then it loses it loses its impact, right? You don't want to do it all the time. But you think with this, you think this song's so long that Mike's guitar tone is killer. And it sounds really good. You could have definitely, it could have definitely had more guitar in this song. 100%. Could not agree more. Uh, I wanted to skip ahead to when uh, Phil goes into his falsetto because that's a really nice accent to the song. fucking guitar oh my god that's so fucking cool i wanted more of that it had the yes. head of the song had more of that i i think i would have rated it higher than i did um but i it, it's a really great tune i i think i i dig tonight 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 like i said the first half loses me a bit really redeems itself uh in the second half i gave it an eight and a half for music mm -hmm. uh, musically obviously the band is great uh, again the drums are, are a sore point for me as well uh but they don't bother me as much as they do you uh lyrics at eight gets a little repetitive lyrically uh, but I do like, uh, you know, the, the verses I think are pretty cool and, um, 4.5, uh, for production, uh, should have marked it longer, uh, lower, uh, just for the length. I think you could trim a minute out of this and still make it cool. Uh, but yeah. it, you know, in the, in the end, it didn't really bother me that much. You almost kind of need that built. It's almost like when you're doing a movie, like a, a longer movie, you have more time to let things breathe and to let that build to So when you get to the big climactic moment. You know, with, with with the big power chords and stuff from the guitar, it hits a little bit harder. So, uh, eight and a half, eight and four and a half. What did you give tonight? 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 Played two hundred and fifty times live by Genesis. Yeah, I'm lower again. I mean, and again for similar reasons to the last song. So seven and a half for music. It's you know, it's a pretty classic type of Genesis song in that it's long and wind and it's got some oddball parts thrown in, but it doesn't. This one doesn't really deviate that much musically from the same root chords. So it's more. It's like a poppy version of their proggy stuff. Um, I like all the whoops and pops in that middle section. Great little solo from Mike at the end. And Phil does sing the shit out of this, you know. Um, lyrics, 7.5. I, I think, like you, like you said, they're just a, just a touch repetitive. And I want, because this, the theme of it, and I think the idea of it is fantastic. They just don't take it as far as I, I would have liked them, liked them to. Mm -hmm. And that's, Phil doesn't tend to write the longer songs up to this point in the Genesis catalog, right? Um, right. Production, though. I mean, the bass is buried too much through that back third. Where it only comes in at the back third, and that's it's really buried. And again, like you think that the album before this that Phil did solo when they were on the break was no jacket required. And the drums on that record sound so good, and they're electronic drums all over that record, and they sound mm. so much better than this one. So that just it really kind of takes away from it. And they, like you said, I mean, it could be tightened up for sure. Even the outro where you tonight, 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 oh, oh, okay, you know. We could probably trim some of that off, and you could trim that second half of the bridge off. Um, like I said, the official video version is probably my favorite, but I'm going to take a run at it. I'm, I'm going to see if I can get a five and a half minutes, 5.45 version for you, Corey. Awesome. Can't wait. So your uh, final score is one more time on Tonight, Tonight, Tonight? It was 7.5, 7.5, and 3. All right. Yeah. So now we're moving on to uh, track three uh, from Invisible Touch. I don't know if you've ever heard of this song before, uh, Kev. little number called Land of Confusion. 
when you think of the 80s, this is one of the songs you think, like, you know, when people who, oh, I love music from the 80s, this is one of the songs you're listening to, man. It's so iconic. So yeah. iconic. It's just great. Uh, the, the intro, the, the drum intro, uh, and e- even with uh, the drums on this side, you're not a big fan of, I thought they sounded great on the intro here. They, they work it here. Um, they, they work it on this song. And like I said, you've got another thing here that with the, the chord progression in that intro, you've got the major to minor shift again on the same chord, which again is super, super effective. And I don't know what it is. It's A and A minor or I don't know what, it, what key it's in. But again, just that little, that two chords, the major to the minor, you know it's this song. You could play those yeah. two chords only and people go, oh yeah, that's Land of Confusion. Which is super mm-hmm. cool to be able to do that with two chords, right? Did you read um, that Mike said he thought it was time for a protest song? Protest song? Yeah. He said, but then he said, done in a very subtle way. Really? You think this is subtle? <laughs> really? This is Genesis doing hard rock. Like, yeah. <laughs> to the point where Disturbed actually did a cover up. But yeah, uh, oh, the, I the quote I, I wrote down for Mike was, uh, oh, we won't talk about that. Trust me. Uh, <laughs> it was a bit of a protest song. You know, I mean, a simple, yeah, the world's a great place. What's a, what a mess we're making of it. And what's sad is that this song is just as relevant today in 2023 as it was in 1986. Yeah, and we'll get to the words, I think, a little bit later, because I've definitely got lots of things to say about that. But obviously the music video for this, too, was a gigantic reason why Genesis just exploded. This song took over the airwaves. But I wanted to ask you, Corey, obviously, I mean, you know the video, but I'm sure that as a Canadian, you wouldn't be familiar with Spitting Image that the puppets were taken from. I absolutely am. CBC used to play Spitting Image. Really? Yeah. Oh, well, fuck me. I didn't know that. Okay. They were doing a Phil Collins and they had the Phil puppet. Yeah. And I just remember just it, tears flying out of his face. <laughs> oh, my God. My life sucks. And my <laughs> wife left me. Oh, I love, I used to love spitting it, but it was fantastic. Isn't, isn't it so cool, though, that Phil Collins, you know, as Phil Collins is, is a is sort of a parody of himself sometimes in some ways, but has the, the humor to say, oh, that's great. We definitely got to use that. Well, and Tony said it's the best video we've ever done by far because we're not in it. (laughs) (laughs) So cool, though. I mean, just for a segue for a quick second, though, there with that. I mean, Spitting Image was a really, really important TV show because it was was high satire, but it was one of those things that they got past the censors because it was puppets. There's a lot of, they got a lot away with a lot more than they would have done with real actors because they had puppets. And a lot of people who did the voices for those characters went on to have huge careers like, um, oh God, what's his name? Uh, Alan Partridge. Steve Coogan. So Steve Coogan, a huge actor. He was, he was a massive voice on Spitting Image. Or Ronnie Ancona, who's had a massive career in, in Britain. Like there's a lot of people who went through, Mike Yarwood, who came through doing all these these voices and these characters. And it was just, it was like nothing else that you've ever, you'd ever seen at the time. And so as a kid, it was really provocative and sort of, you know, naughty. And so we'd all talk about it at school, and they're making fun of the Prime Minister and the, the Queen. Did you see the Queen last night? You know, so it was just super cool. <laughs> well, whoever did the voice of Reagan, I think, just had him down pat. Like, oh, God, the Reagan yeah. was really good. So that's doubled with a, a real bass in there too. I never I'm knew that. Pretty sure it is. Yeah, you can. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. I, I mean, I don't know for wow. sure because, but I think it is. Yeah, and then because you, you've got that that synth bass, I think a real bass, and then you've got that low down, that, that kind of 
really metallic-y kind of yeah. sounding synth lines. It's, man, it's just so dark and foreboding and cool. There's too many men, too many people making too many problems and not much love to go around. Like, if that doesn't sum up the world we live in today, I don't know what does. Ah, no kidding, eh? I mean, it's ever was it so, I suppose, in a way. Um, it's just same shit, different pile, I guess. But it does feel like we're, this is ever more prescient even maybe than it was in A6. And I don't know, we're, we're the same vintage, Corey. I remember growing up when the threat of nuclear war was very, very real. You know, we, we lived through the Cold War and we kind of came out the other end of it. And sometimes lately, I, I'm not to drag this fucking podcast down, but I get that little flashback to when I was 12 and kind of terrified of the Russians every now and again these days. And this song really sort of takes me back to that, you know? Yeah, no, 100%. Uh, all the movies we were watching at the time, like uh, 86, uh, Rambo, First Blood Part Two, uh, <laughs> you know, would have been like the biggest movie. Uh, Schwarzenegger uh, was huge. Commando, movies like that, you know. Um, there was this real uh, underlying fear of Russians and and, yeah. and the threat of nuclear winter that uh, uh, was really kind of prevalent everywhere you, you, you kind of looked. You know, we were doing, uh, you know, under your desk drills and things like that. Of course, yeah. if a nuclear bomb ever hit, uh, the only thing you might as well do is bend over and kiss your ass goodbye because uh, it's all over at that point. But, uh, oh, yeah, it's... In the military, we got trained that, you know, if you see the mushroom cloud, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to lay down facing it with your with your rifle underneath you and you know you're sort of assured that you'll be perfectly fine as all the the buildings and cars go and trees and mountains go flying over your head as long as you're <laughs> facing the the blast with your rifle underneath you, you'll be you'll be fine absolutely well there's that uh, shit. i don't know if you've seen oppenheimer but when they're uh, oh, gonna, yes. gonna test they're they're gonna test the uh the, the nuclear device and there's one guy and he's wearing like sunglasses and he put like cream all over his face like this will save me I'm sure if there's, if there's radiation, I'm wearing like suntan lotion. I'm good. Oh, man. I mean, yeah, I mean, they just, they just didn't know, right? And uh, one thing I just wanted to go back to the pre-chorus here. Mm-hmm. I love how uh, in the recorded version, Phil kind of mixes up the lead into the line. Uh, uh, this is a land of confusion. Like uh, this uh, pre-chorus is can't you see? Uh, the next one is tell me why. Uh, I, I love it when yeah. they mix it up like that because when it guarantees that when you're singing along to this song in the car, you're going to fuck it up. <laughs> so even if you tell yourself the first one is can't you see, you're going to belt out tell me why and Phil singing can't you see and you're going to fuck it up and feel stupid. Well, and a Mike Rutherford lyric, which, yeah. you know, we, we sort of, you know, we, we, we took Snowbound and threw it over the coals when we, we covered that song. Sorry, Scott. Apologies to Scott. He's, he's not going to forgive you for that. He was really upset. <laughs> You know, this is, is this one of Mike Rutherford's best lyrics? I think so. There. Yeah. Certainly, certainly in the Phil Collins era. Anyway. I got to pause it. We're just going to listen to the whole damn song. Like. <laughs> yeah, you talk about great pop choruses, right? You know, and you've got everything in there. You've got a great melody, Phil singing the lead line, but then, oh, that's, okay, that's just built for a crowd to sing along to. I mean, yeah. admittedly, hopefully in the right key, which that wasn't, 
but <laughs> just a great bit of writing to get the crowd involved, and it just works so well. And lyrically, it's great. Uh, these are the hands we're given. Use them, and let's start trying to make it a place worth living in. Like, absolutely. Man, that, it's like you said, that chorus it breaks my fucking heart. Yeah. Because it's just that beautiful sentiment that's sort of been... I'd written, I'm, I'm going to read this out because I was quite pleased when I wrote this out. It's been crushed under the rising boots of totalitarianism. So that's, it's just that thing of, you know, man, at our best, mankind is an amazing species. We're capable of so much creativity and compassion and love, and yet we choose to let dickheads do this to us, right? And this song, that, that chorus, oh my God, it's heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. Man. It, it really is. We, we as, a, as a people, continue to put the dumbest among us in positions of power and and then watch them burn the world down. And it's like, yeah. when are we going to learn? Let's quit raising up the idiots and, and you know, let, let's get the best of us to lead us instead of what we have in, in North America. Couldn't agree more. And I don't care what side of the aisle you're on. There's idiots on both sides. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. All right. Uh, I wasn't going to do this, but I love this verse and we're right here. What do you say? We play a little bit of it. Let's do it. I'm gonna I'm gonna call it. It is Bite Rutherford's best lyric. Yep, that's a oh Superman, where are you know? That's a great line. It's contemporary, yet it still yep. endures because it's a comic book character. And then you get that sha, those little shouts in there that again are very eighties. Yep. But my God, it gets your it gets your dander up. <laughs> How perfect of a line is this? The men of steel, the men of power, are losing control by the hour. Yeah, he wrote this yeah. yesterday. <laughs> it seems like. <laughs> All right, you thought the, the chorus was heartbreaking? Uh, come on. I remember long ago when the sun was shining and the stars were bright and the sound of your laughter as I held you tight. It's just so, the narrator's so mournful here yeah. about what life was and, and what it could be, but we keep yeah. elevating idiots and just watch them fuck everything up. It is so good, though, because it's that break of tension. We've had this really intense, relentless kind of, you just feel like you're under attack, you know, with, with, in the verses and the chorus. And then you get this break, and it's so clever. It just takes you out of it. And the sound of your laughter as I held you tight. What a fucking line that is. But again, and my criticism here, Corey, is the drums just sound, they sound like, the drums are not as bad in this song for me because I think they, that, that industrial feel kind of works with the song. But here, it's not, my God, they, they sound awful. I, 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 I don't hear it. I, I think okay. the industrial tone works 100% in this song. Yeah. I, I can get you, get on board. On the first two tracks we listen to, not on Land of Confusion. Just it, it section, totally works in this Just song. in this section for me. It's that, what it is, is it's that snare tone, because they change the snare sound. Mm -hmm. And it just, it's just, it's very, 
What was it? Was it you and Mariano talking? It's like a wet fart. Sounds like a wet fart. It's in a blanket or something like that. Was one of one of you said? So no, no. See, to to me, it's like the perfect dry fart where it's not too loud, <laughs> it's not too explosive, and you you get good range on it and, and good tone, <laughs> and it just feels good. There's no no risk of follow through. Is that what you're saying? No risk of yeah. You, you're not worrying about uh, anything. You're not worrying about skid marks. You're not worrying about uh, the neighbors. It's just it's it's perfect. Oh, and then Lord. you get back, and then you're getting pounded again. Uh, and I wasn't going to play this part, but we're going to fucking listen to it now. Now that's a fill, man. Yeah. Like I said, that's where the, that snare sounds great. And it's got that, it's like a machine gun. It, it's, it's, you've got, you know, we've got this little utopia that we've stepped back into and it's all very light and breezy. Oh, hey, look, the real world's just coming fucking crashing back in and stand by because it's not great. Oh, man, that's, that's epic. But it, it's the drum that, it's the drums that lead you out of that dream. Yeah. It's that industrial totally. drum because even Tony's like, nah, 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 nah. it's still quite pleasing, yeah. right? And then the drum, it did and it's kind of, it's slowly bringing you back into it. I love that transition. So it's not immediate. It's almost mm-hmm. like you're, you're, you're daydreaming about a life long gone. And then the, 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 the sound of the drum is, is slowly bringing you back into the world. Yeah, it's that, it, it's, that's how written it's like the machine gun, right? It's exactly what it is. It's that, oh, fuck. Because, <laughs> you know, I mean, when war breaks out, no one's ready. And it's that, oh, I, fuck, okay. You know? Yeah. Escalation. And uh, any drummer, any drummer worth his salt, everybody air drums to in the air tonight. Uh, any drummer I know is doing that part of of Atlantic. Yeah. If you da 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 da, boom. And he comes in past the beat as well, which I love. It doesn't stop yeah. exactly what you think he's going to do. Yeah, it's it's very very cool. And and then this verse, uh, let, let's get into this a little bit. Yeah, because uh, he's trying to too many. Uh, uh, where the hell are we here? I won't be coming home tonight. My generation will put it right. We're not just making promises that we know we'll never keep. And it's like, I wish that was the case. Like (laughs) he said that in 86 and it felt like we're going to do something about it. And here we are in 2023. And it's like, fuck. Man, the more you read it, the the better that lyric gets, eh? Yeah. It's just, it's such a really well-written piece of commentary, you know, apart from, and it rhymes and it's, it's, you know, it, it works. It's got themes in it, but just as a piece of social commentary, it's superb. I was just saying, as a political protest song, I put this up against anything Bono's ever written. Like, like lyrically, it's so strong. Yeah, and it's not, it's not nearly as far up its own ass as Bono. So well, you know, that's that, true. That, that's, that's a true. plus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, don't let don't let Kamire hear you uh, uh, ragging on Bono there. He hey, he I fucking Bono. love Bono. Oh, really, Mark? That surprises me yeah. a little bit. That surprises me, but I love Bono as a singer, as a musician, as a songwriter. I think he's well to a point was superb. Mm-hmm. But he's an insufferable bellend as well. Yeah. And I'm okay with that. I can live with both sides of him, you know? <laughs> yep. Hey, I do a podcast on David Lee Roth. Uh, no one is up his, <laughs> his own ass more than David Lee Roth, so. I always thought that, they was, that he was saying shell shock. And I think maybe okay. it's just being in the military in that bias, but I always thought because it fits with the tone and that's what I thought it was. So th- this whole song, you could almost, you, you could treat it as a shell shock, you know, a, a, a PTSD sort of fever dream. 
in a way, right? Mm-hmm. If you think about it that way. Um, so I was starting, I don't think it is, I think it is just sha-sha. I think it's just, you know, meaningless vocalization. But it, to me, I always heard shell shot. So. That's interesting. Mm. And as a soldier, that would be a, an interesting way to, to kind of look at it. Love that last chorus. Man. Stand up and let's start showing just where our lives are going to. Yeah. And musically, I love it because you're expecting a fade out here. Yeah. You know, when it gets there, you think, oh, yeah, this is going to fade out. But then you get that last little, that little last little punch and then that fading minor key chord. Yep. Perfect way to end this song. Perfect outro. Uh, for a perfect song, I gave it 10, 10, and 5. And my note is, fuck anyone who thinks different. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you son of a bitch. No, 10, 10, and, and four, only because, like I said, the drums in that middle section, I just wish they were a little bit different. Everything else about this song, again, it's, show me a more iconic song in the 80s. I'm sure there are songs that are as iconic, but more iconic, I can't think of one. Um, great bridge, the lyrics, like you said, I mean, they're just, again, the, even, even as we've listened to this, after I've listened to this all week, it just keeps getting better. Um, Again, that chorus just it just breaks my heart, Corey. I just want I better know. for mankind, and it breaks my heart. But yeah, fantastic song, ten ten. Your homework for tonight, Kevin Brown, is to listen uh, to that section again and and think about it as, as kind of a fever dream. I remember long ago, and and listen to how the drum changes and how it comes back, and how that transition is when it comes back, and how it builds into that uh, that next verse. And I think you might appreciate it a little bit more. Hey, I appreciate it plenty. I appreciate it plenty, Corey Morissette. I just don't love that fucking snare sound. <laughs> no, you don't. You're British. You appreciate tea. Just, you know, I, I, hey, look, you like Metallica. We're going to talk about fucking snare sounds. We're going to have a big <laughs> conversation there, my friend. <laughs> well, and you got the snare sound in, in Land of Confusion, 100 times better than a lot oh. of the snare sounds you get off Metallica. <laughs> and now, finally, on side A, we have song number four, uh, played 53 times. Uh, live by Genesis, only on this first tour, on the uh, Invisible Touch tour. Never played again. This is In Too Deep. The drums sound better on this, straight away to me. Like I said, that snare sound, I don't, why, it's weird, hey, because I know Haskin, Scott Haskin talks about that lots, about a snare sound, and specifically a snare sound, like a kick. If it's bad, you can sort of get around it and talk about it, but if, it's, if the snare sound you don't like, then it can really kind of throw you off. Snaring this just sounds like a, a sort of a bluesy, smoky, dingy little blues bar, right? See, and it's a little off for me for that. Like, I, I was thinking like you, like, this is a torch song. But it yeah. almost sounds like a, it, it sounds like a little too, little too tinny uh, to, to be like in a, in a bluesy jazz club, I think. Really? See, I always yeah, think of this because I, I would imagine that this is a, a sample of a brush. Like, not playing with, not playing snare with sticks, but playing it with brushes. As close as they could get it back then in, you know, in 86 on the, on the Simmons, but yeah. 
That's interesting. So I don't get brush. Like I would have mm. preferred brush. Like give me an acoustic kit and yeah, somebody yeah. playing with brushes on this. It sounds phenomenal, right? But uh, I'm going to uh, keep it going here because we're going to come up to a very iconic uh, part of the song that Phil could never replicate again if his, if his life depended on. <laughs> And right there, I think, is why they only played it 53 times on that initial tour. One of my favorite moments in the uh, Come Rain or Shine documentary that covered the 07 reunion tour, mm -hmm. um, it was like the first day of rehearsals. And and Phil was trying to hit that crying, crying. And he's trying to get up there. And everyone's just kind of making faces at him. But he, he was giving it his all and not coming anywhere close. And I don't think they ever even rehearsed that song after that. He's like, oh, I'll give it a go, see if I can hit that note. Nope. Well, I don't know if you ever, I don't know if you do karaoke or if you sing in the shower, Corey, but that, it, it is a hard note to hit. Oh, yeah. Only because of where it comes before it. It comes, it's an octave and a bit above the last note you sang. And that jump is, even if you're a great vocalist, it's a really weird, it's a weird spot to hit. So, you know, I totally like fill off with this. Interesting though, you know, obviously, you know, we've had a couple of comments on uh, Twitter from uh, one of our listeners talking about the uh, American Psycho movie, because of course, you know, oh yeah, uh, yep. the character was a big Phil Collins fan. But this song was featured in, and actually, I think what I was reading was almost sort of written for it, uh, Mona Lisa with Bob Hoskins, which right. is a, a, a 1986 British, like a neo-noir kind of detective thriller-y kind of thing, which I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. You do a movie podcast. Have you ever seen that movie, Corey? Never seen it, never heard of it. But, you know, I was reading that. Like, Tony was really getting into soundtracks around that time. Yeah. Uh, he had some opportunities to write some music, and then it didn't get chosen, and then the film got canceled, and... Yeah, he wrote this originally for uh, the movie Mona Lisa, and then uh, more famously uh, portrayed also in American Psycho. Which have you seen that one? I have. I would urge you to watch Mona Lisa. I think you would really enjoy it. It's uh, it's one of those movies that you don't expect to enjoy as much as you end up doing. It's very slow paced, but the relationship between the two principal characters is one of those. It just stays with you for weeks and weeks and weeks afterwards. It's so good, and the soundtrack's fantastic. Well, you had me at Bob Hoskins. Uh, yeah. He he was a genius actor. He was. Uh, so, yeah, but I'll definitely be checking that out. Uh, speaking of checking out, what do you say we check out the chorus? You know I love you, but I just All right, I'm on board with the snare sound now. I don't know what I heard in, in that first uh, yeah. section that, that kind of turned me off. It sounds a lot better here. Yeah. Maybe it's just the instrumentation that's backing it up, right? Maybe it's because it's, it's really out front in that first section. Maybe that's throwing you off. Maybe. I was right. I love this. I can't course. even blame it on the whiskey. I'm, I'm drinking fucking Gatorade tonight. So. <laughs> well, you're all, you're all hopped up on sugar. You're fucking, you're there you go. Sugar crash once we've done this podcast. Gatorade zero. I'm diabetic, my friend. Ooh. No, Gatorade oh, zero. Oh, I guess so. I guess so. <laughs> Fuck. You ruined my joke. Jesus fucking Christ. But I was going to say, though, with this chorus... Write better jokes. Jesus, that's not my fault. <laughs> hey, no, no, that's your thing, right? Remember, you're, you're Aerosmith podcast. You're the, you're the failed comedians, not, you know, not, not me. I'm not doing stand-up. That's right. Do, here. Do, you want, do you want a knock-knock joke? Knock-knock. Who's there? Interrupting cow. Interrupting cow. Boo! <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a classic. It's a classic, folks. It's a classic. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? 
as juvenile as it is, I'm 50 years old. It still makes me laugh. <laughs> no, anyway, so back to me a little bit serious. What I love about the... Up to this point, um, Tony's been sitting just on that synth pad. It's not a string. It's kind of this really mellow, uh, floaty kind of thing that he's playing. But then in the chorus, he adds that um, digital piano in. And so you get that electro- or electronic piano and then t- Mike playing those just beautiful little... Very small, very tasty licks in. It's a good chorus, man. Like, we've had some very good choruses on this side of this record. Absolutely beautiful. It's just lovely. This whole song is just really, really wonderful. Right. Why are you using electronic drums when clearly you haven't sold your kit? Because those are real drums. Those are real toms. (laughs) That's what I thought. And when you like, oh, my God, that sounds like real toms. Yes. It's like, fuck's sakes, play those fucking things. They sound way better. I love this whimsical uh, part he's playing underneath yeah. uh, the, the the kind of main uh, keyboard section there. It's really kind of whimsical and magical. and It's a great section, and it's one of those things, too, that, you know, one of the criticisms of this album that some of the, you know, fuck it, some, a lot of the mainstream press just didn't like Genesis, despite the fact they sold billions of records. But they said, like, it just sounds like a Phil Collins so- solo album, which I don't agree with. But this song, up to this point, you could say, yeah, this could have been on No Jacket Required. You know, there's there's a lot of similarities apart from when you get to this section, because the chord progressions in this section, that's all Tony Banks. Phil Collins doesn't write that chord progression; he just doesn't. You know, and would it, Phil have let uh, Daryl put in those little accents on the guitar uh, too? <laughs> uh, if it was a Phil solo song, that seemed very Mike. Yeah, Mikey. I mean, well, there's not a ton of guitar in Phil Collins solo stuff, to be honest. Right? You don't yeah. get a lot of that in there, so. This is a this is Genesis. This, I mean, obviously, maybe I don't know. Did, when you dug into this, Corey, I, I was a little bit unsure about whether this was mainly written by Phil and possibly written partially ahead of time, which was unusual because obviously they wrote the last album and this album, and the next one was all written together collaboratively. But I get the sense that maybe Phil had some of this written when he came in. I think maybe I don't know if you kind of dug anything out on that, but. Well, I, I found a quote from Phil Collins where he said the song was already there. Uh, Ray Cooper, who is Elton John's percussionist and also production manager, uh, rang me up and said, do, do I have a song uh, for this film, Mona Lisa? And he said, no, because we're working on the Genesis record and they're doing it all as, as a group. Right. Uh, but maybe because they had a lot of material, he could find something that would suit. So uh, they sent him a copy of the movie and they ended up giving him uh, In Too Deep. So, yeah, they were working on this independent of the film. Oh, at okay. First. okay. Yeah. Now that makes sense. Fuck me, that's a heavy lyric. 
Yeah. Holy Jesus. You know, that's one thing that I think Phil does really, really, really well is write sincere lyrics that are very sort of mournful and heartbroken. He, he, he can sort of rip his heart out and just put it on, on the table in front of you, where that's a difficult thing to do and do well without being cheesy. This is a great example of someone doing it very, very well. Yeah, this is a great Phil song. Uh, he's singing the hell out of this. Um, and it's a great Tony song. I love everything he's doing on the keys on this. And and my next time actually is 427 because we got a great Phil vocal. We've talked about Phil's vocals lots on this episode already, mainly in the sense of him sort of rocking out and pushing himself. This reminds you that he can also sing this mid-range stuff without pushing himself, and still he's got that really silky, sultry voice that works perfectly for this kind of song. And you know, he, he, when he lays on his own uh, melody on top, you know, I love it. just yeah. nice and light and airy over top of it. it it's just, it works so damn well. What a great, great ballad from, from Genesis. I'm sad they only ever played it. 53 songs. I understand it, it could be a tough one to sing in certain sections, but uh, I would have loved to have. I never got to see Genesis, unfortunately, but yeah, I, mean, I would love to get a live version of, of In Too Deep because uh, th this is one of my favorite Genesis uh, slow songs by far. Uh, Kevin, what were your rankings on In Too Deep? Music 9. I think it's pretty flawless for a ballad. I don't know how you really improve it that much. It's maybe a little, I don't know. Maybe I've gone a bit too low there even. Beautifully played. There's nothing there that doesn't need to be there. You know what I mean? Mike adding those little accents on guitar, though. That's, again, it's, it's those little things that just elevate it. Lyrics nine. Three little notes. Just just yeah. raise it up, right? Yeah. Lyrics 9.5. I mean, again, it's basically a perfect pop ballad, especially the chorus, and it's a perfect breakup song. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you a, just a little story here. Um, when I was 13... Uh, the sad sack teenager I was when all my you know friends were listening to punk. I was I was pining over this song. So when I would have no, I might have been twelve at that point. But I was in um, a production, a school production of a play called The Mikado, a musical. I don't know if you know where I am, The Mikado. Anyway, um, Rogers and Hammerstein. And there was a, there was a senior go. So I think I was like I would have been a less equivalent sort of a grade seven. And there was a girl, the lead sing, the lead sort of part in this was a grade nine or ten or something. And I just thought she was beautiful. She was, I, she was the entire world to me. And she was playing piano in the, in the practice room. And I went in and I was trying to build up the courage to talk to her for at least five minutes. She didn't even know I was there. And I stared at her back for about five minutes before I just lost my composure, lost my nerve and left and went home, put this song on and just cried myself to sleep. So, <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if that makes me sound pathetic or, you know, sympathetic, but no, that, was, that was the case. So, yeah, it's just fantastic. So 9.5 for lyrics and 5 for production. It's pitch perfect. As a ballad, it like you said, it probably is the best ballad they ever did as a band, I think. Um, <laughs> and again, everything's right here. That blend of electronic and acoustic drums show that you can have that balance. And that's what I miss on the rest of this side of the album. So yeah, 9, 9.5 and 5 for me. Corey, how about you? I disagree totally with your scores. <laughs> you gave uh, music a 9, I gave it a 9.5. Um, I liked it more than you, apparently. It's, it, it's, it's no perfect. I don't even know why I docked yeah. it half, to be honest with you. 
I don't know why I don't do one either. Yeah. <laughs> uh, lyrically, again, I totally disagree. You gave it 9.5. I gave it a 9. Uh, only because uh, it gets a little repetitive at the end. And that's why my production score, I give a 4.5. Because uh, it's it's really, uh, it, it, they just keep that chorus refrain over and over and over and yeah. over again as it goes out. Uh, it's a five-minute ballad. I think it's just as good as a four-minute, 30-second ballad. Cut out a couple of the, because I'm in two deeps. Um, it's a great ballad, just a bit long. Uh, uh, nine, uh, nine and a half, nine and four and a half for in too deep. Very nice. And guess what? That's my side A score as well. Nine and a half, nine and four and a half. I love oh. side A of Invisible Touch. So many great tunes. Um, even even just looking at it, uh, you know, I'm breaking it down. This is what I, you're. I like electronic drums. They're fine. They're fine. They're not as bad. I, I know you. You're a drum snob, right? And you want to be, you know, acoustic kit and all that stuff. You fucking Ringo behind your little kit and you're bashing away and shit. It's fine. It's fine. I heard the accent peeping through there. I do. I do like when the accent comes out. <laughs> now, I I love uh, side A Invisible Touch. Yeah. I gave it a 23 out of 25, which equates to 92. percent wow. uh, How about you, sir? Well, I was I wasn't too far behind. It was eight point five, eight point five, three point five. So really, again, we're we're splitting hairs. And I'm, you're right. I mean, like I said, the drums, and it's it's so funny because, like I said, I've been listening to this album, you know, most of the week leading up to his recording or when we were supposed to record in the first place. Um, and then again, you know, so you really listen and sit down and take. Well, now I'm going to make notes. I've refamiliarized myself as much as I ever needed to. Now I'm going to take notes. And when you listen to it that critically, it's like I've never really noticed that the drums kind of bug me because that song could be so much better if it was just if just just for that one thing and again it wouldn't even bother me so much coming off the back of no jacket required which was such a good drum album and had that blend of electronic and real drums so yeah you know i you know honestly if this if this side of this album sounded more like duke i think it would be it would end up in that realm of untouchable perfection as a pop mm -hmm. record you know, I, as you know, so I was thinking about as as a comparison, and again, I'll do a Van Halen comparison here. I'd say OU812 is the comparison. They're now not quite that sort of level, but I think if you took this the same the same criticism of OU812 and cleaned those up, I think if you did the same thing with this album generally, but definitely side one, my God, I mean, because it does sound dated, Corey. You know, I don't think you, you know what I mean? Like it does sound like it's from the eighties. It's you know, I I don't think that's a bad thing though. No, like for, no, no, for, no, for me, sounding '80s uh, just brings me back to my childhood, back to Plentywood, Montana. Do you want? Uh, should oh, I tell that go. story on this podcast? No, I won't do it. I won't do it. I was definitely not getting hanky panky while In Too Deep was on the radio. But we, we will definitely talk about that at some point for sure, because <laughs> it's a great story. Tales from the Come and Go in Plentywood, Montana. That's right. But uh, so you were 21 on this side. I was uh, uh, 23 and a half. Did I say or 23? So we're 44 out of 50. We're uh, so far 88% uh, for Invisible Touch. Now, a uh, little preview of next week's show. We got Anything She Does, Domino, Parts 1 and 2, Throwing It All Away, and The Brazilian. Two words. Fuck me. Murderer's Row. What a side. Oh, my, oh my God. <laughs> and i got to tell you, too, I, I, will, I will admit this now. I didn't know that term. And you've used it a couple of times on this oh. podcast. And I was just going to Google that. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, that's kind of. I'm going to use that now from now on. So, yeah, it's you use all sorts of terms that I don't know. I just sit here and I nod <laughs> politely, like, "Oh yeah, you're clever." And then I'm like, "I don't know what the fuck this this dude's talking about." It's funny though, hey, because you can see, you can see why the sort of the the proggy 
hardcore Genesis fans kind of just walked away at this point. You know, I mean, yeah. Abacab pissed a few people off. Genesis was like, well, okay, I've got Home by the Sea, and we got, you know, Dodo. And it's like, okay, well, maybe, or not Dodo, but maybe, you can, maybe they're bringing us back. When they did this, like, nah, fuck that, we're out. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. But they were replaced by millions upon millions of pop fans. So Genesis didn't lose any seats in the stadium. They just changed the people who were there. Yeah, 1986, I think Genesis were the biggest band in the world. Genesis, I mean, that tour, I was reading about that. They they grossed something like, and I was reading too, like, in too deep, they, they, only, they only played it in North America on that tour. All the, oh, yeah. the gigs they played it was North America. And they they were they were pulling in something like three hundred thousand a night in the U.S. net. Wow! They were grossing something like five, and they played like one hundred and ten gigs. It was the only time they ever played in New Zealand and Australia, and then they did four nights at Wembley Stadium to finish the tour, which that's is crazy. insane. Like Queen did two, <laughs> and yeah. that's impressive to do two at Wembley is impressive, but to do four, pff, holy bloody hell! Biggest band in the world, and so yeah. um, you, we uh, you tasked me last time. We were playing this little uh, game you came up with uh, involving Spotify plays. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can't remember what you called it, uh, and then there were three. Is that what it was? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So I, I had to find a couple of bands, and uh, with Genesis is uh, a Spotify plays, and we're going to see if Kevin Brown can correctly rank them. Almost uh, certainly no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I went with uh, bands around this era who you could say were the biggest band in the world at one point. Uh, one of them, you could say the next year, actually 1987, they were probably the biggest band in the world. And that's in excess. Oh, you know, th- that's, okay. that's when the kick album came out. Right. So, you yeah. know, they were playing uh, Wembley just a few years later in 92, but in, in 87 kick was a huge, huge album. So at the end, then there were three tonight, of course, is Genesis in excess and a band that was probably the biggest band in the world a few years before. And that's Duran Duran, who currently has a new album out and a new tour coming up. So your bands are Genesis. Duran Duran and NXS rank them from top to bottom. Yeah, well, first of all, let's say Duran Duran are a seriously underappreciated band. Uh-huh. Those guys are yep. great musicians, and that new album, that first single they've released off it sounds fucking good, man. Um, NXS, a timeless band, I would say. A, a band that you could release most of their their catalogue today, and it would be just as contemporary and just as relevant. Okay. Oh, this is a tough one. I mean, I think Duran Duran obviously are still a going concern, so I'll probably put them first okay i think in excess probably again still well yeah i think they're probably still getting more plays than genesis i'm gonna go duran duran in excess genesis all right well you didn't do too bad but you're not right uh number one in excess over 10 million streams on spotify monthly streams okay number two duran duran 8.9 number three genesis at 7.4 Oh, so I just got the top two flipped. Okay. Yep. Nice. Okay. Well, that's that kind of surprised me that in excess was that high, yeah. but the, you know, never tear us apart is still like, I just watched a commercial on TV that were playing that song. It's like, that's still, you know, yeah. an all time classic. What well, new sensation is one of my karaoke go-tos and I can hit the live, baby, live. I can do that bit one out of every five times, but when I get it, it feels fucking <laughs> it's good. It's magic. Yeah. <laughs> I always go, I, I listen to the uh, the live version that came out on Live Baby Live, oh that love, baby God. love, and he does that yeah. little vibrato in it. I always try and hit that, but uh, as, uh, th- you know, that's the, the song that kicks off that live album, yeah. and just when you hear the, the crowd explode when the song kicks in is one of my favorite live album moments. I love that live version of New Sensation. You know, and we do, we, it's funny because, you know, the, the other podcasts that we do on music, 
they all feature really sort of charismatic frontmen. I didn't think of that until, yeah. well, just now. Michael Hutchins, mm-hmm. another one who could sing, could move, and he was a showman, you know, and such a sad loss. Man, in, how many albums did in excess? Maybe we'd have to do in excess at some point, Corey. I, I was going to say, I've been thinking about UCC season two because I was getting deep into in excess listening to, to Kick and to X, which is another really underappreciated oh, album. God, what a great Listen album. Like Thieves. Like, the, you know, that trifecta, those three albums yeah. are just just wonderful. So they have done a lot of albums. Uh, I want to say it, it's, you know, around the 15. I'm going to look it up here as we're talking it. No, can't be, surely. Is that with the All new right, single, I, though? Because, I mean, Hutchins here, we're only talking, right? All right. Yeah, well, then there, there's two, then, that they, because uh, they did Original Sin, which I guess is an original album. It's, it's a studio album. Yeah. But it was like a redo. And a switch they did to that Canadian jag off. Yeah. Uh, you know, from the TV show. <laughs> yeah. So then they only did 10. Yeah. Man, that would work. The last album, Elegantly Wasted. Like, what Great an album's right one. Holy Jesus. Great record. Wow. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, they're in, they're in the list. Folks, you heard it here. You heard it here, not first, but, well, first, because that's the only place you can hear it. Um, we are going to cover an excess at some point. And you know what? I, I, I saw them with J.D. Fortune in Saskatoon. What? And that was the, the yeah that was the show he blew out his Achilles uh, during uh, "Don't Change" the 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 final song. He was doing no like a way. jump off the drum riser and he slipped on beer and like blew out his ACL or something and oh. had to do the rest of the tour sitting on a stool. Ah, see, you gotta get a throne. If you fuck your leg up, you gotta get a throne, dude. You know, just borrow Dave's. Dave Grohl will let have his throne. Yeah, all good. <laughs> Yeah, this is before the Dave Grohl throne, but yeah, what a, a great start to a concert. They do a countdown, right? Wow. And, and as it's counting down, and we're all chanting five, four, three, two, one, and then the harmonica from Suicide Blonde kicks oh, in, and then the wow. curtain drops. It's like, boom, here we go. Oh, it's fucking great. <laughs> I, there you go. I, you know, I would never have thought of that as an opener, but yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. That's so cool. Was, and that was at Sass Place then, or? Yep, that was at the Craig, wow. yeah, it would have been Craig Union Center at the time, Sastel Center, whatever it is. But yeah, sold out show. It was right after the uh, the Rockstar In Excess show, which I actually really liked that show. Right, uh, that, that was a great. A lot of talented folks uh, on that show. I got the soundtrack album and I watched all the episodes. And yeah, JD Fortune at the time, you know, he was doing In Excess songs justice. I actually got to slap his hand because he ran around. I was right uh, by the hockey boards in that first row, uh, right. stage left, and he ran by and I got to slap his hand as he was running through. I, yeah, I mean, he's a bit of a Dink, but good yeah. vocalist. He he can sing though, yeah. Good vocalist, yeah. It's like it was it was just great to see the the fucking Hutchins brothers and Gary Gary Beers, one of my yeah. favorite all time rock names. <laughs> <laughs> First name Gary, last name Beers. <laughs> Gary fucking Beers. <laughs> Middle name Gary. <laughs> Gary Gary Beers, love it. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Okay, well, how about we wrap this up, Corey? You we should let these fine people go to bed. Because I, I always assume that people listen to this in the bath with a glass of wine at about mm, 9.30. I don't know. Is that weird? It is a little weird that you think so highly <laughs> of yourself that people are in the bath touching themselves as you uh, whoa, talk whoa, about whoa. Genesis. I didn't fucking say anything about touching themselves. You implied it. You implied it. <laughs> Maybe, I mean, a good chance they're rubbing themselves dry. You know, that's... <laughs> if you're in the bath with a bottle of wine, you're touching something. That's all I'm going to say. Reaching out, touching me. Touching you. Touching you. Know. you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, thanks for listening, folks. Um, join us again next week when we are going to look at side two of this gargantuan album, Invisible Touch. Also, come check us out on social media at Ultimate Catalog Clash on Facebook and You Catalog Clash on Twitter. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to get us on threads, Corey. I think I'm going to do threads. Um, check out my other shows, The Tom Petty Project and Seaside Pod Review, a Queen podcast. And if you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at Kev Brown Canada Corey. 
Where can our fine friends find you? And for the love of God, man, what have you got coming up? You've got all sorts going on, so tell us what's going on. I'm pretty bored. I just kind of sit around my house uh, lately <laughs> in the dark and just wishing I had something to do. Uh, so I started, uh, you know, three other podcasts. I do a Van Halen podcast with Mark Meyer called And the Podcast Will Rock. I'm doing an Aerosmith podcast. They're on the road right now. Unfortunately, Steven Tyler blew out his vocal cords. He's off for a month, but they're touring their final tour. Backtracks Aerosmith Revisited with Scott K. Haskin who's going to be on the show in just a few short weeks. I also do a show called Backtracks Theme Music with John Mariano. We're talking our favorite music from our favorite movies. Uh, you can find all those and more as part of the Deep Dive Podcast Network. And if you want to find me on Twitter, please don't, but it's at CD Morset. <laughs> okay, good night, folks. <laughs> <laughs>